one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Good day and welcome on board the Good Ship Talking Space for October 17th, 2012. This is a special edition of Talking Space and I have with me today my colleague, Mr. Mark Ratterman. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing really well and it's not just because I took off work today so that we could uh, make this call and get to talk about the stuff we've got. It's because, well, today's just a really good day, but I am excited about what's coming up here. Indeed. And uh, I want to go ahead and just preface this by saying uh, the way this whole whole particular show started was with, uh, uh, with you guys. Uh, it was with a lot of letters and a lot of uh, Twitter DMs to me and, and, and a few other folks um, concerning tonight's topic. And it's because of all of you that had that expressed interest, that really, really wanted to hear uh, from somebody from this company and their project. I wanted to go ahead and make sure that we finally went ahead and, uh, and got this information out to you. So our guest tonight is Mr. Mark Hemsel, Future Program Director of Reaction Engines Limited. Uh, Mr. Hemsel has a BS in Physics from Imperial College, uh, obtained in 1978, and a Master's with Distinction in Astronomy and Astronautics from the Hatfield Polytechnic, from Hatfield Polytechnic uh, obtained in 1982. He joined British Aerospace Systems Limited in 1978 and worked as a systems engineer on several satellites, including MRSAT-2, and ended up specializing in infrastructure systems such as HODL, the multi-role capsule that he spent some time collaborating uh, with McDonnell Douglas, also working on the Delta Clipper uh, single-stage orbit project in 1981. Um, he joined the Department of uh, Aerospace Engineering at the University of Bristol, exploring more academic aspects of space infrastructure development, including development concepts such as the OS-10 space station, the Excalibur multi-role capsule, and the habitation extension module. In 2008, he joined Reaction Engines as a future program director. He has over 80 publications, including 40 referred journals and papers and co-authorships, of a book with Alan Bond called A Sumerian Observation of the Kofel's Impact Event. He is the, was a former president of the British Interplanetary Society between 1997 and 2000 and is currently the editor of the Society's Journal. I want to welcome to Talking Space, Mr. Mark Hemsel. Pleasure to be here. Sir, can uh, you give us a uh, just... Uh, we've got a pretty eclectic audience that sort of understands what's going on, but just in case um, some of our audience does not, could you give us sort of a 30,000-foot level of what the Sabre engine is and, and what, what, what Skylon is? Certainly. 
Um, Skylon is a reusable launch vehicle that can take off from a runway like an aeroplane, go all the way to orbit, and then return for a gliding landing on the runway that it took off from. And to achieve that, uh, we have got this special engine called Sabre. What the Sabre can do is it can use atmospheric air as the oxidizer all the way up to Mach 5 and to around 25, 26 kilometers. So 20% of getting to orbit is done in this air breathing mode. That engine can then switch to being a pure hydrogen, liquid oxygen rocket engine uh, to do the remaining 80%. But because of the rocket equation being a logarithmic function, doing 80% gets you far more benefits than just 20%. So we end up with a vehicle that has got something like 22% of the takeoff weight is the structure, the payload, and 78% um, is fuel. Whereas if you use a pure rocket system from the ground up, you end up with something like 12.5% is the structure and the return stuff and the payload and everything. Uh, so we've almost doubled the weight we've got to play with to make the vehicle viable. So, okay, you've doubled the weight. What, what challenge does that present with the rest of the design? Well, it eases it. It means we can, um, we can use, uh, we still have to pay attention, obviously, to structures, but we're in a regime where in the past aircraft have achieved the, the fuel-to-weight ratios that we need for Skylon. So we're, we're much more in a much more feasible area uh, than, say, the early pure rocket concepts of uh, Venture Star and Delta Clipper. I was going to ask about that, what the lessons were learned from that, because we, we were working with uh, you know, single-stage-to-orbit technologies here in the, 19, you know, the early 1990s. Uh, mm -hmm. What was learned from that experience, and how has that carried over to, uh, to the Sabre engine? Um, well... British Aerospace that was doing HOTOL, the precursor to Skylon at the time, actually participated in the very early stages of the Delta Clipper. And in fact, I was out with the team at McDonnell Douglas in uh, LA, uh, co-located there for a while. Um, I think what we, from our side, what we learned was that the mass ratios needed to make pure rocket systems work did not look feasible. You just can't make structures with thermal protection systems and landing systems and all the other gubbins and get the mass ratios. Um, and I think eventually that message sort of came, came through with the X-33 Delta uh, Venture Star, which sort of slowly had its mass grown and eventually had to be abandoned. Um, so I think we probably were ahead of the head of the states and understanding that pure rocket systems are probably not viable. But then since the very early 80s, we've always had these air breathing engines as the center of our reusable launch vehicle uh, activities. Okay, so um, you guys ran a test, I guess it was uh, this past summer, no, on, uh, on uh, the, uh, the engine. Uh, there yeah, was... I it's a test of the heat exchanger, which is the key new component that's needed to make the engine work. Uh, those tests are still ongoing. The test program hasn't quite completed, uh, but um, 
they, the, the tests have gone very well. They're a bit slower than we would have liked due to some technical gremlins and things. But uh, we're almost at the end of that test program. And we're certainly we've learned that the heat exchangers can be made for the weight and the performance that we need for the Sabre engine. Okay, let's let's go to Skyline for a little bit. Um, what's, the, what's a typical mission profile for uh, for that particular vehicle? It's not too dissimilar to the shuttle in some respects. It has a payload bay that's a little bit wider than the shuttles, but a bit shorter. Um, you would put the payload into the vehicle when it's horizontal. It's towed out to the to the edge of the runway. It's then fueled up with the hydrogen and the oxygen. Um, it then takes off. Uh, the takeoff is a bit sporty. It's about half the speed of sound before rotation. Um, but there are, thereafter, it sort of climbs into the atmosphere up, as I say, till Mach 5, 26 kilometers. And then the nacelle intake seal off. The engine starts working on the internal oxygen. And it can go to an orbit uh, between 300 and 600 kilometers would be the typical operating range. Uh, it would then deploy the payload. Um, again, in the early stages, we expect that quite often will be an upper stage with a communication satellite. But it can also visit the space station and dock with the space station and deliver about 11 tons. So very similar, again, in performance to the shuttle. Um, and it can also launch polar orbits. We've actually designed it to make sure that it can do everything that people want to do in space at the moment and that it can do the things that people would like to do later on. Okay, one of the complications I, I was reading in preparation for this was the, the, uh, the ISS docking ring. Has that problem been looked at um, or has that problem been, been fixed on, on Skyline? Um. Uh, we go into controversial areas here. <laughs> okay. The, um, the International Space Station is about to introduce a third docking berthing, sorry, a fourth docking berthing standard on top of the three it already has. Uh, so the word standard is somewhat losing its impact here. Right. Uh, this is a Johnson Space Flight, um, a Johnson Space Flight Center design. It's called the International Docking our international docking system standard, get there in the end. Um, and in many respects, it's got some marvelous technologies in it, but they've made the hole up the middle way too small. Um, and we can't make it work in a Skylon environment. Uh, so we, at the moment, are working on a completely new standard, which we call USIS, uh, Universal Space Infra uh, Interface System. And it is intended not only to be the docking berthing port for manned systems, but it's also the connection for payloads to upper stages. And for many satellites, it will be the interface between the Skylon and the satellite. So we're seeing a single um, docking standard that we would expect to see absolutely everywhere. If there's two space systems that weigh more than a ton that connect together, this standard is the one that we would hope would be used. Um, the technologies in, it will use probably will be very similar to the IDSS. It is just a matter of configuring them to get a big enough hole up the middle so you can actually get things through it. 
So, okay, Skylon looks like it's going to be used predominantly for delivering cargo. Um, you see, you know, and there is going to be a piloted aspect to this, no? Yes, but, but when um, you only put a pilot on board when there's people flying in it. So we would envisage a, a pressurized module that goes into the payload bay, um, and that is how people would be carried on Skylon into orbit. So you don't fly people when you don't need them. Uh, but when you do need them, uh, the Skylon vehicle will be certified to airworthiness um, regulations and should uh, carry as many as 24 people. Uh, we haven't done as much work on this module as we have on the main vehicle, but our guess at the moment from our studies is that we could carry about 24 people into orbit at any one time. Wow, 24. Do you see a... a, a then if you're, if you're carrying 24 people, um, my question then is, um, do you see a, a tourism model possibly? I mean, I mean, Virgin Galactic is going full, full bore into space tourism. Do you see a, a space tourism model for this? Uh, yes, eventually. Um, we come back to the docking port problem here. What we envisage that module starting off doing is carrying four people plus a load of equipment to the space station, and that's when we'd like a docking port that enables not only people but equipment to go through, so we can do our party piece of both equipment and personnel at the same time. When we enter service after the test flight program, uh, we will be ten times safer than the target set for current human spaceflight systems. So we can fly astronauts safer than they currently fly. It is probably not yet proven to be good enough for the general public. That will happen as the as Skylon is used and builds up a flight record. We will then approach levels when we would have demonstrated the sort of safety required for public flights. And then, yes, um, if you assume a mix of professional astronauts and sort of tourist astronauts or what I prefer to call public access because I think half of the tourists will actually be uh, postdoctorate researchers doing their own research in space with the money coming from the grant application uh, and businesses. It basically what people call space tourism is really the person paying for the flight and doing the flight decides what the flight's for. Um, we would expect the price of those seats to maybe be as low as half a million dollars per seat. Wow. Um, and how does, uh, you'll have to forgive me, I'm a little bit, uh, um, you know, naive as far as what, say, you know, SpaceX is charging you. I think they're about $20 million a seat, you know? Uh, I don't know SpaceX's seat price. Right. Uh, I, th I think it's about $20 million, so wow, that's a bargain. Um. Yes, that that would be. Uh, we we would expect to well undercut any expendable system on uh, both cargo flights and on um, flights with people. But we certainly get a bigger benefit for flights with people on board, and the people cost will drop more than the cargo cost will drop. Now, I just want to go over. It's it's a lot of the mission profile is a lot like shuttle. Where do you also envision using this particular vehicle to go ahead and? Um, I mean, shuttle was used in its early heyday to repair satellites or something like that. Do you see that that happening? Not so much, because the one difference between us and the shuttle is the shuttle has a space station built in the front end. Uh, 
Uh, so the shuttle, every time you launch a shuttle, you effectively launched a small space station with the manipulator arm and additional power and living quarters uh, and all those things, which enabled it to go to places with a capability to do things like service and repair. Um, Skylon is much more like just a truck. It can deliver and it can bring back. But if you want to do on-orbit operations, you probably need something like the ISS or space stations to do those operations um, uh, in space with space-based assets. That said, if someone wants to buy a Skylon and put the kit needed for satellite recovery and repair as an addition in their Skylon and then offer a service, I think they could probably do good business. Do you see that as the business model? You're not going to go in and in into business, say, and and say, you know, sort of like the, the what NASA's doing with the CCI CAP program here in the States where we're actually leasing spacecraft. You wouldn't be in the leasing business. You'd say you'd, you'd, you'd be buying this like, you know, Boeing buys, you know, you buy an aircraft from Boeing, say. Absolutely. If you look at the airliner model, in uh, it is actually legal to be both the person who made the airplane and the person who operates it. Um, and we see that model for space as well, that we will have a consortium that will make the Skylon vehicle and then we will sell it to uh, anybody who wants to buy it so long as our governments let us do it. So some of the people buying it may be government, maybe even be military. Some of them buying it may be people trying to do a traditional launch service. Some people buying it may be trying to do something special like create a space tourism market or um, create specialist systems like satellite repair and recovery. Um, we see lots of different operators finding ways to use their Skylon to uh, well, to make money. Mark, I've been hogging the microphone way too long. If I'm going to turn uh, throw it over to you for a minute. I'm curious, talking about the the company and this design, and I'm sure there's a lot of different segments of the company. Uh, we're talking about engine, we're talking about the space plane, but how many people are working in how many different areas for, for this? Uh, we are uh, about 60 people. Um, what, kind of a, what kind of a ramp up do you see in the future? Um, we see ourselves growing to a few hundred to be a major participant in the engine. Um, my actual job is to package up the Skylon airframe, ready to be given to an airframer prime uh, who will become the customer for the engine. So we don't see Reaction Engines being the company that makes the Skylons or even makes the entire Sabre engine. Of course, there's a great deal of collaboration and interaction between the different contractors and subcontractors to to pull this off so I can see where it would be quite big overall when you put all the numbers together. Yes it is. It's it's a program along the same size as the Airbus 380. Uh, it also as it turns out is similar in size to the Ariane 5 program if you include all the add-ons. So it's the sort of size project that aerospace companies in Europe and of course in America are used to. It's not enormously bigger in any respect, but it's still a very major aerospace project and would have to go the same way as regards supplier chains, 
uh, and consortium building uh, and all those usual things and financing of course this is probably unique to to my career and my work I'm a electronics tech with the Federal Aviation Administration in the US and so I tend to think of technical details and I don't particularly know aircraft and certainly certainly wouldn't pretend to know much about spacecraft but uh, how would you know this is going to take off from a runway and land on a runway what kind of uh, spaceport airport would would you need would it be an extremely long runway like we see it at some uh, of the big, big airports or military fields? Yes, um, it does need a, to take off, it needs a long runway. Um, at the moment, the runway is looking like the real hard specialty strength runway needs to be about four kilometers uh, long in order to accommodate to take off with an engine out. It then needs another one and a half kilometers of runoff in case you've aborted a takeoff attempt um, uh, before you came to rotation. So the whole length of real estate you need to take up is five and a half kilometers long. And the runway does have to be stronger than, than normally put into place, although we are now talking to uh, people who build airports, and they told us that some of the really heavily used airports are already putting runways in of that sort of strength just so they last long enough uh, for the um, work they're doing. So um, it is a special facility, it's not just any old airport, but it's not something grossly new or high-tech, it's just uh, an airport with a specially long runway and hopefully not close to anybody because Skylon is going to be a very, very noisy beast um, and you don't really want neighbours too close. I guarantee if I knew it was going to be taken off, I'd be outside where I could see it. And uh, from, from the measurements you just gave, it's similar to, to our, our U.S. listeners to the shuttle landing facility. You know, it's a pretty big runway, it's quite long, and it gives yeah. you the area you need to safely operate. Uh, yeah. Coming back, we can land on a grass strip, virtually. Uh, coming back, it's a completely different story. You can land on almost anything. Uh, it's very slow, uh, very light, and uh, so uh, it's a strange contrast. I'm, I'm curious, what do you foresee the re-entry profile would be like if, if the uh, space plane was in orbit? Would it mm -hmm. start re-entry possibly like halfway around the world like we're familiar with the shuttle? Or, yeah, uh, it's very similar to the shuttle except for because it has a much lower ballistic coefficient. Uh, or fluffiness, as our scientists would call it, um, it re-enters higher uh, and therefore cooler. So we don't need the shuttle's um, really high temperature um, tiles. We can do it with a reinforced glass ceramic. Uh, the downside to launch to this sort of cooler, higher re-entry is that you stay in the fireball a lot longer. So we do have a heat soak problem of heat soaking into the vehicle that was less of a problem on the shuttle. Um, and what we've got is about 200 kilograms of liquid hydrogen remains in the vehicle to mop up that heat as it soaks through. As I'm reading some of the technical information on your website about Skylon, uh, and you've already described this, how it takes off and it's air using air-breathing engines and then transitions to liquid oxygen. Um, 
that brings it up to a speed that the uh, the researchers that that I read about in the U.S., for instance, the X51A Wave Rider, back mm -hmm. in August had some trouble on their test flight at that point. And hypersonic flight isn't easy. Uh, is there a learning curve that that you foresee with this, or will this be different because of the type vehicle? Um. Hypersonic flight, if you're trying to do scramjets, is very difficult. Uh, hypersonic flight, if you are rocket-powered, is well explored and well understood. Um, we're not foreseeing any special problems in uh, either air breathing up to Mach 5 or faster flight than that under rocket power. Um, so... Uh, you know, we've already been in wind tunnels with the vehicle at Mach 9 and Mach 12. Uh, so all the wind tunnel predictions are matching the CFD predictions. We don't foresee any particular problems with what we're trying to do from that point of view. Uh, if you're trying to do scramjets, different story. Um, you know, you're in for a hard ride on that. Thanks for pointing that out. I had forgotten, not having looked at the uh, Wave Rider details recently, I'd forgotten that that's exactly what that is. It's a, it was a scramjet uh, test vehicle, quite different. And the problem you've got with a scramjet is you can't even switch it on until you're doing about Mach 7. So uh, you've somehow got to get yourself to Mach 7, and that's, uh, that's before you can even switch it on. This is all complicated. I appreciate your explanations here. Okay, I still had a, f a couple other questions with reference to um, the thermal protection system, say, that's, that's on Skylon. Um, how does that compare? I mean, the shuttle used these, uh, these silica tiles. Um, yes. how, how different is the thermal protection system on Skylon as opposed to shuttle? Right. Well, at the very peak points, at the nose and the leading edges, it's actually essentially the same as the shuttle. Uh, so if you look at our models, you'll see a light gray area. That is the same as the shuttle. It's um, carbon silicon carbide um, material. Where you see black on Skylon, it is a high temperature glass which is reinforced with silicon carbide. Um, it's a material that's got a bit of history to it. We're still having to uh, redo work that was done in the 80s to recover the material in the form we need it, but it was done before, so we don't foresee a problem with that. Um, and it's a much more robust material, it's much easier to make, you can press form it, uh, you can knock it around, it's not fragile, uh, it's quite flexible, uh, so it, it's um, not that different from having a metallic surface from a sort of resiliency point of view. So it's not going to, be, as you said, it's not as fragile. I mean, obviously, the, sh the, the, the tile system on the shuttle was extraordinarily flat fragile, as demonstrated, yeah. as demonstrated when they were taking Endeavour down the streets of Los Angeles. Uh, so this is pretty, pretty, uh, you know, pretty good. I mean, as far as um, you know, its strength and, and viability, you won't need, say, the team of individuals um, uh, to you know basically maintain the thermal protection system as we did with shuttle. Then. You still have to do uh, inspections on return, and there will have to be repair schemes knocked up for it to account for um, debris and meteorite damage. Um, and I must emphasize that this is a solution for Skylon. It's not a solution that the shuttle could have used. 
In fact, if you go back to the original shuttles before the external tank was put on the system, they were using a different system as well for the same reason. They had a lower ballistic coefficient and they were using refractory metals uh, instead of the ceramics as the heat shield material. So the, the move to the external tank is what drove the shuttle to the uh, silica solution. Right, and I was almost thinking the same thing um, with reference to that. Um, just another question too, as far as the ascent is concerned, as as you're as you're leaving the ground, um, shuttle was designed. I mean, it it was an interesting ride. You know, you got pressed in, into the into the seat pretty good, but then it kind of leveled out to like a just a just like a, a G or two um, after the the solid rocket boosters would take off. How different would the ride be on Skylon if I were on board? You know, what kind of G forces and so on would be pushing on you. The way up you wouldn't see any more than 3G so that's sort of um, lower than many fairground rides. Um, on the way back I think you never see more than 2G uh, which is it, which is much lower than people are going to see on the suborbital hops. The suborbital hops you're going to be seeing 4 to 5G on the way back simply by the physics of what they're doing whereas our um, our system uh, will, uh, as I say, 2G is uh, the worst you'll see on the way back. While you're talking about that, how long would it take to go from uh, from initiation of your takeoff to orbit? What kind of length of time would the powered flight be? Um, 20 minutes till you reach final orbit. So it, it's not the, the infamous eight minutes of of sheer, you know, fun that the shuttle was, so to no, speak. It's more like um, it's 12 minutes of air breathing and 8 minutes of rocket. That's partly because we've got lower accelerations, of course, which is why it takes longer. Um, also, the, something else that I was thinking of, too, uh, shuttle had, you know, emergency landing procedures. We had, you know, the return to launch site, you know, profiles and um, you know, board to orbit, board once around, that type of thing. What would be like a like a situation if if there was a was an issue? Say you had an engine go out. What would be the the, the you know return to launch site? Say you know, uh, Skylon has been designed to have a abort uh, capability at every point from the time the motors ignite. Uh, so you can take an engine out. You can take uh, almost any non-catastrophic failure and the vehicle comes back and can return, uh, can abort the mission. And in fact, specific configurations that otherwise look good were abandoned because they had a few seconds where you didn't have an abort capability. So you can always come back, basically. That's 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 good. So in in that respect too, it's probably even safer than than shuttle ever was. Yes, it will be. Yes, and quite intentionally. Um, and the other point I would make is that it's um, it's going to be certified. We're already in discussions with uh, the certifying authorities, the airworthiness authorities. So it's going to be um, treated like an aircraft from that point of view. 
Okay. Has you know, all right. Has Issa sort of stepped in and, and kind of sort of taken a look at what you guys are doing and said, you know, yeah, keep going? Or have they been trying to possibly even underwrite you guys as far as uh, any type of finances are concerned? Or, or well, I think Issa, like NASA, is not a monolithic beast. Okay. In a single mind. Uh, the situation with ESA is that the UK Space Agency, that does not have a technical arm, hires ESA to perform uh, due diligence on us for the government's involvement in the program, which is small, it's about 10%, but nevertheless they do do due diligence on their part, and in doing that they, they also do due diligence for the other investors. So we are looked over by ESA. ESA do see what we're doing um, and review what we're doing and comment and uh, have some power over what we're doing to make sure that we're doing it right. Uh, we also have some technology contracts with ESA on specific aspects um, to do with uh, advanced nozzles and some of the heat exchanger work. And and from a an outside you you folks are a private company from an outsider investor standpoint um, what you know have there any been other folks interested in funneling money to you guys or or even anybody here in the states for instance um, I'm not going to talk in detail about um, the the contacts we're having and the way we're financed okay. and everything for for obvious reasons yeah obviously. We do have a bit of a problem with the states in that um, Skylon is clearly dual use and therefore the ITAR regulations come into play. Um, so we have to be careful that involvement with the states doesn't undermine the underlying business uh, plan for the company. Uh, but we do talk to states, we talk in Europe of course, um, and uh, those talks generally are very productive. That was one of the questions that uh, I had received from from some folks that were writing in and so on um, about you know funding and so on because the, the the project by the way has got a lot of support here from from the uh, from the folks that follow the space community here and uh, I just wanted to find out that that part. I, I, I think the the basic principle is uh, in the end I think it's going and this is my personal view is that it will end up as a complex mix of government and private money, as these things often do. Yeah. Um, but, but the new thing here is that however the money is put into the program, ultimately the launch price pays it back. So that not only are you, you um, recovering the cost of operating it, which many launch vehicles still don't do, but also you pay back all the acquisition costs, all the development costs, the test costs, all the things that got you in the first place. So, you know, the dream we've got is that the whole of getting into space becomes a truly commercial activity and whoever has put the money into fund it will get their money back plus interest. You, you kind of touched on on something there too uh, with with ITAR. How how in, with with the ITAR regulations, as interesting as they are, um, what 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 you know so far? How many hoops have you guys had to jump through to to work this? Because ITAR has been an unwieldy beast. It needs to be reformed big time, and that's a whole different show in and of itself. So, yeah, um, I, I I think we have um, uh, not found a problem with it by not dealing with American companies, to put it brutally. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Um, yeah. 
I mean, yes, it is unfortunate. Uh, I mean, one example is we we did do a, a sort of tour of the uh, southern part of America, and one of the things we saw was the um, Michelle plant making the shuttle external tanks. Now, the external tanks on the shuttle are very similar in technology to the tanks we're going to put on on Skylon. Uh, they're about the same size, they're the same material, we expect the same manufacturing processes. Um, and yet, uh, those guys who presumably could really uh, use the work, um, it doesn't look possible. And that, that's, that's just, that, that's sad because they can use the work over here. Um, and Mark, you've got, a, you've got a couple more? Yes, I'm curious. Having looked around your website, I see a phenomenal amount of information there. And, and rather than try and describe the different sections and and what all is there could you take us on a just a short uh, verbal tour of, of what's up on reaction engines right well mostly what we're doing is is um, getting the technologies in place for the engine that, that you can't just buy off the shelf now there's parts of that rocket engine uh, like the rocket thrust chambers the compressors the turbo pumps which are things that you can buy from jet engine companies and rocket engine companies. What we've concentrated on are the bits that you can't, and those particularly are the heat exchangers. So mostly what we do is develop the heat exchanger technology. And we're just at the tipping point now where we've proven that we can make the heat exchangers. The heat exchangers we make are now the size. They're not scaled down laboratory modules. They are the heat exchangers of the size and the performance that's needed for the the actual engine. So now what we're moving to is the next stage, which is to turn the engine into a system uh, by bringing on board the people who can make the other bits and integrate them up so we have an engine consortium. So that is the next stage, is, to, is we've, we've underlined the technology bit. We're now moving forward to getting those technologies integrated into an engine system and at the same time, hopefully, get an airframer on board, taking the airframe forward. So we've got test sites. We have opened up the rocket um, test cells at uh, Westcott, which is where they, they used to be government uh, rocket test cells. They're now in private hands, and we have two of those that we use with quite an extensive nozzle and uh, rocket engine testing work. We have a site here on Cullum. Uh, where I am at the moment, and at the top we have a site where we're testing the heat exchangers and the non-rocket bits of the engine. Um, we have manufacturing companies locally that we've bought to give us machining and fabrication skills. Um, and we have a, a specialist heat exchanger manufacturing plant that at the moment is as experimental in that it is using the equipment for the first time on a production basis and now we know we just need to duplicate that machinery up to make the production plant for the flight heat exchangers. I see mention on your website of some things I guess that are coming along in the future. A aircraft spacecraft called a uh, Lapcat A2 and a scimitar engine. Right. Lapcat is actually a European Union project to explore the technologies needed for hypersonic flight, uh, passenger flight, point to point. 
Um, the target is Brussels to Sydney in four hours. And we joined that program partly to, to illustrate our capabilities to the rest of the European industry uh, and also to explore the extension of the Sabre engine into this new field. Um, the vehicle we produced, which is called A2, which is actually just the configuration number, we actually haven't given the vehicle a, a specific name, um, was out of the first round the only vehicle that could do the mission, although because we're restricted below Mach 5, or round Mach 5, we can't actually make the four hours target, we're more like four and a half hours. Uh, still a considerable improvement, but um, doesn't quite meet their target. Most of the LAPCAP work is actually being done by other people and is on scramjets. Uh, now, um, the thing we do have some difficulty managing to convince people is that LAPCAP is actually more difficult to do than Skylon. It's more difficult to have in aircraft oper type operations, fully certified, thousands of flights per airframe, um, things that could take off from existing airfields, meet pollution requirements, that is more difficult to do than to do the Skylon. So it's something that might evolve after Skylon as a use of the Sabre engine technologies. That's quite exciting to think about spaceflight and at the same time some applications that can uh, revolutionize travel across the globe. Yes, assuming that it can be done economically. I'm, I'm not a great expert on aircraft uh, economics. Um, it, it is a difficult thing to do, and it's likely to be expensive. But if the market's there, we probably have the best technologies to try and address it. Just a really other question. There are other applications for the Sabre engine that uh, that might be you know ported over to commercial flight. The Sabre engine is a specific engine concept and he's really only good for getting Skylon into orbit. There's a very close airframe engine match there. Um, the, heat, the use of heat exchangers in aircraft engines, even at subsonic level, may have some advantages in terms of getting much more efficient engines. Once you enable yourself to sort of move heat around through heat exchangers, you can then look at much more interesting um, engine cycles that could be more efficient. Um, but uh, those are probably long term and we would have to get the cost of the heat exchangers down because um, at the moment they are eye-wateringly expensive items. Okay, I guess really the ultimate question here is um, when do you see Skylon coming online? I mean, when, when would you see for the, like, first, the first cargo missions uh, coming online and then followed by the first crewed piloted missions? Right. The current program uh, says the first orbital flights, uh, first orbital test flights, are in 2018, and it goes into service after a, a two-year test campaign, during which um, 400 flights are undertaken in 2020. Now we've had a bit of slip on that, um, so that's going to go to the right a little bit, maybe by a year, maybe two years. We're currently redoing the programming. Um, as part of the preparation for the next phase. So I can't give you a de definitive answer, but it's somewhere around 2020 to 2022 in operational flight, and the first flights to orbit on the test flights, uh, 2018 to 2020. Mark, do you have anything else? 
I do when I mentioned the website uh, I just want to throw this in that there's a downloads page on the reactionengines.co.uk and this downloads page has a wealth of images that people can uh, take a look at, a video gallery and technical documents that uh, is quite interesting. I'm going to be doing some downloading and reading. Your website looks quite good. Uh, congratulations to people that have put some work in on it. Thank you very much. That will be much appreciated. Okay. I guess since we're, we're, we're talking about the website for the, the final um, question here, if, if folks really, really wanted to go ahead and learn more about what Reaction Engines is up to and, and follow the Skyline Project, uh, uh, where you know what what would be the URL of the website? www.reactionengines all one word dot co dot uk. Um, but if you Google Skylon, you'll get to us pretty quickly. Mr. Mark Hamsel, I just want to go ahead and say thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it, and I also appreciate you putting up with our little computer glitch here today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir. I uh, really do appreciate your time. And uh, just just a, a note too. A lot of listeners have been asking about uh, getting you folks on and uh, and uh, learning more about Skylon. So this is going to be a rather popular episode. I'm looking forward to to getting this one out to to folks. Thanks. My pleasure, Mark. I don't know about you, but I'm sufficiently blown away. This is this is going to be quite an exciting project, and I'm so looking forward to the uh, 2018 date when uh, Skylon makes its debut. I gotta admit that I tend to be focused on what's closest to home. Cape Kennedy, NASA, etc. And it's an absolute thrill to, to hear this and thank you Gene for pulling this together and making contact and for our listeners that really uh, cued us in on this. No problem Mark. This was such an intriguing um, it's such an intriguing afternoon that we have had here today and uh, I, was, I was really really eager to, to go ahead and talk to Mr. Hemsel about Skylon. Um, indeed, we're, we seem to be focused at, uh, at KSC, at uh, Johnson Space Flight Center, and so on. And there are other activities out there that uh, are going on in concert. And uh, this is another breakthrough, I think. And if, uh, if all works well, this is, gonna be, this is just going to be something else. And uh, I, I, I don't know about you, but I learned so much today. And indeed, it's going to take a long time to go ahead and, uh, and get my mind wrapped around this. And I'm really looking forward to having Mr. Hemsel back at some point and talking about uh, any type of follow-ups and what's been going on with Skylon because we're, we're going to be watching this closely. And again, for the listeners that wrote in and said, hey, we want to hear about this, all of you, thank you so much. Uh, I really, really appreciate uh, the input. and um, We wanted to make sure that uh, you folks really, really you got what you asked for and uh, hope, hopefully, uh, hopefully we came through for you. I also want to give out a, a huge thank you to Ms. Helen Weber who helped uh, go ahead and get the logistics uh, put together for this interview on the uh, on the part of Reaction Engines. She's been uh, quite uh, uh, quite accommodating, and Mr. Mark Hemsel too. At the time of the recording, it was uh, British rush hour. I don't know what uh, what rush hour is like over there and and uh, all that, but uh, uh, they really really uh, sacrificed some time, and I really do appreciate the time they took uh, to sit with us today. And uh, also a uh, a shout out to uh, Ms. Doc uh, to uh, Dr. Lucy Rogers for uh, helping us also put this uh, this effort together. So Mark, uh, again, thank you for all the everything you did today and uh, hopefully, uh, I don't know about you, but shoot, I learned, learned so much today and uh, one of the observations I have, it's just gosh darn it, I, we, we need ITAR reform because uh, 
as uh, uh, Mr. Hemsel said, uh, we could have used the work over at uh, over at Michoud. But uh, again, I learned much. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm still kind of kind of blown away. And that'll about do it for this edition of Talking Space. Once more, thanks for listening, everyone.